have your copy of the scripture, would you take it out and turn with me now to the gospel according to John at the very end of chapter 14. Uh, we have just sung from Psalm 105 the uh, faithfulness of our God to keep his promise that he promised Abraham when he was sojourning in the land to Isaac and Jacob when our fathers were few that they would possess that land and indeed their offspring uh, which were innumerable came to possess uh, that land inheriting uh, the work of the hands of the wicked. And so God the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity here in this upper room discourse, which began in John 13 and continues all the way to John 16, our Lord and our God makes further promises to his disciples, dwelling upon uh, the matters that are in many ways very near to his heart as he prepares to go uh, to be condemned by wicked men, hanged on a tree as a curse for them. But they are struggling to believe. They are slow to believe, slow to understand. And so uh, our Savior uh, continues to confront them with the promises of his word, inviting them to trust in him. And so uh, we'll consider verses 28 to 31 in chapter 14 of John's gospel. Believe in Christ, verses 28 and 29. The blameless Christ, verse 30. And then the broadcast of Christ's love for his Father in verse 31. Before we read God's word, let's pray, seeking his help and blessing that our Savior's spirit would write these truths upon our hearts. Let's pray. O God in heaven, unworthy are we to come before you, unworthy are we to be in your presence. And yet we come boldly because our Savior, your beloved Son, the perfect one, the righteous one, has clothed us in his righteousness. And so we ask, O God in heaven, that the Spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ would indeed speak to us, that we may be confirmed in hope, that we would be convicted of our sin and our slowness of of belief. that the spirit of holiness would sanctify us by his truth. Hear us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The Gospel of John, chapter 14, beginning at verse 28. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I, and now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, that I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Amen thus far in God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. The Lord Jesus Christ assures his disciples of his imminent victory over the devil. That his victory is for them. So that they may have confidence that he has won them for his own. That, he, that they are his. And so let's look now at verses 28 and 29. Uh, the call to believe in Christ. 
there are a number of failures of the 11, the faithful 11 disciples in that room. A number of failures which prevent them from rightly believing Christ, believing in Christ, rightly knowing Christ, rightly coming to Christ. And we'll consider, I think, three of them uh, over the next few minutes. The first is a failure to love. Jesus has been displaying his love for these disciples all evening as he makes very great promises to them of what he will soon do. Remember some of these promises that he goes to prepare a place for them in his father's house. That they will do great things if they but ask. He promises that he will return to them and he will return for them to bring them to where he is. He promises to leave them his peace, verse 27, and to send his spirit to teach them, verse 26. These promises are for them and they're for us. They are for his disciples of whom we are. But his disciples, those faithful 11 disciples in that room, they don't believe him, do they? Because they haven't really listened to his words and they have shown that they do not love Jesus rightly or do they love him well in spite of what they may claim. Of course, you can love someone. You can say you love someone with your words, but your actions can prove your words are empty and meaningless. Right? The, the parent who says he loves his children but spends no time with his children except to correct them and makes no efforts uh, to see them. That would certainly cast serious doubt on love. No matter how many Stuffed bears he sends from all over the world. Or the employee who says he loves his job, but complains incessantly about the working conditions and the compensation and the duties and the customers and the supervisors. You know, that strongly suggests that employee does not love his job. Jesus here confronts the disciples with their lack of love for him. What does he say? Look at the end of verse 28. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. Jesus' words suggest they have not rejoiced. What are we to make of this statement? Jesus is suggesting these disciples do not love him. That they've given up everything for him. Peter said as much earlier, didn't he? Indeed, they have given up everything for him, but their joyless response to his departure reveals the coldness of their love. Their joyless response to his announcing he will return to his glory reveals how limited their love was for him. How much their love for him was focused largely on their dreams for his kingdom and the earthly glory that they would receive because of his kingdom. They were perceived that they would get because of a relationship with him. Their joyless response reveals how little they love him, how little they understand him, and how little they believe him. How often is our own love cold and dry for God? How often are our thoughts of God only in terms of what he can do for us and what problems he can fix for us rather than 
loving him for what he has done for us. And loving him because of the love he has already displayed for his people. How often are our prayers simply organ recitals? You know, you're praying for so-and-so to be better and such-and-such to recover. How, how often is, is that the extent of our prayers? Just, a, just an organ recital. Rather than spending time in prayer, adoring and worshiping God in prayer. How often do our prayers center around a, a punch list of relatively petty issues or even great things that we want God to smooth over rather than our prayers centering on confessing our sins and dwelling on the abundant riches of his grace and thanking him for his kind providence and his merciful care. Surely there are necessary prayers. I'm not saying that we ought not pray for our ailments or for healing or for God's grace to aid in our problems. But how much time do we spend in matters of troubleshooting rather than worshiping, adoring, and praising in prayer. What is it that drives us to prayer most often? Is it things we need God to fix, or is it an appreciation for the majesty and goodness and kindness and love of God? The content of our prayers suggests the nature of our understanding and view of God. This is one reason why the prayers in our worship services, morning and evening, have uh, different focuses, or fossa, if you want to be pedantic. And we have uh, prayers of invocation and adoration in which we adore God and we ask God to be with us as he promised. We have prayers of confession and prayers of intercession. And a great prayer in the morning in which Various sorts of prayers are combined. In the evening, instead of having a prayer of intercession, we have a prayer of adoration and thanksgiving to further emphasize that prayer is not simply asking God for things, but also adoring and praising and marveling and thanking Him for His mercies and faithfulness and blessings. The various sorts of prayers in our worship services provide a good model to help prayer in your own private and family worship. We would all do well to take heed to our prayers. Our prayers are quite revealing. Your prayer life offers great insight into the nature and health and character of your spiritual life. But we should see, we must consider a way of application as we think on these things. We must see how our hope, our hope is in God's love for us. Just as Jesus confronts these men that they do not love him. Or do not love him rightly. So too our hope is in God's love for us. Our hope is in Christ's love for us. Because if our salvation were dependent on how well we love God. And all would be lost. God's love for us. Christ's love for his people. That is why any can be saved. Often people 
when they've been going to church for a while or involved in religious activity, they get the idea that somehow that, that God's love saved them at first, but then if they are to continue in that salvation, that they've got to love God enough. They've got to do enough. God, God kind of gets us started, and then, and then we've we got we to kind of make it on our own the rest of the way. But an honest reflection on ourselves shows how far we fall short and how far we continue to fall short. How often is his joy and his glory our goal? When we are honest with ourselves, we realize that if staying right with God were up to us, we would all be lost. We would all be without hope. Because we never do well enough. We never do good enough. What Jesus demonstrates here is he did not die for those who love him enough. Isn't that what Jesus is is showing here? He's not dying for these men because they love him enough. He doesn't die for those who are sufficiently devoted to him. He does not die He does not die to be a reward for those who attain enlightenment or who demonstrate some meritorious spiritual achievement. What Jesus again shows us here is that he shows us exactly the kind of person or people for whom he went to the cross. Jesus does not go to the cross for people who love him enough or who love him well. He goes to the cross for men who are spiritually dull. Who aren't even happy about him going to the cross for them. Who are not happy about his return to his father and going to glory, the glory he had in the beginning. And so there's a a failure to love, a failure of the disciples to love Jesus. But there's also a failure to understand what he will do. Jesus goes to the cross to empty himself for them. He has already emptied himself of becoming and taking the form of a slave. But now he goes to empty himself of any dignity he had left. Any human dignity that he had will be stripped from him. Isn't that why we sometimes sing and we wonder as we sing? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? That I should gain? He left his Father's throne above so free, so infinite his grace. He humbled himself so great his love and bled for all his chosen race. How little the disciples understood Christ's love for them and what he would do for them. And if they had understood his love better for them and what he would do for them, they would have loved him more and rejoiced at this news that he is going away. Do we understand what Christ has done for us? Do we have joy and peace because of what Christ has done for us? And so there's a failure to love. There's a failure to understand what he will do and a failure to understand the benefits, the benefits of his departure. 
My brother was joining our cell phone plan uh, this, well, this week. One of my least favorite things to do is to deal with cell phone companies. But after we, after about six hours and finally got everything sorted out, I was texting my brother the benefits that he will enjoy being on the plan. And he was, you know, it was fairly straightforward. You know, you can text on an airplane. If you go to Canada, you can have your phone there. Very, very straightforward uh, benefits. He understood them. These disciples, they don't understand the benefits that Christ is going to accomplish for them. Jesus' return to his Father has, has abundant benefits, both for him and for them. Right? Jesus benefits by returning to, to his Father in that his humiliation is ended and he returns to the realm where he belongs. And we considered that last Lord's Day. But Jesus' return to heaven is a great benefit to us as it marks the acceptance of all Jesus has done for us. His ascent into heaven is of great benefit to us as well. His ascent into heaven means all the evidence against us must be thrown out. Jesus' return to heaven means God, the righteous judge, has accepted Christ's work for us on the cross. Vindicated him, and if God has vindicated our Savior, he will assuredly vindicate and acquit us on the day of judgment. Some of you watch TV serials centered around lawyers and courts. Maybe it's Law and Order, maybe it's Jag or Matlock. And often in those cases... Uh, there will be a lawyer meeting with his client in some drab chair house. The, the client will be brought in, obviously, in an orange jumpsuit and shackles. The attorney will sit him down and say, well, I have great news. The judge has thrown out this critical piece of evidence because of some reason. Maybe there's a chain of custody, maybe... Uh, one thing or another, and he says, you know, I've got good news for you. You're going home. You'll be out by Friday. Because without that, there is no case against you. Well, in a far less cliched manner, Jesus' return uh, to heaven is good news for our case because in Christ returning to heaven, God has declared he approves of everything Jesus has done for us. Everything Jesus has done is for us. But they don't understand the benefits they will receive from him going away. If you turn in your copy of the scripture to that penultimate book of the Old Testament, Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 3. Next year on Lord's Day evenings, we'll be working our way through Zechariah. But there's a, a glorious illustration of this in Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah sees there, uh, God shows him Joshua, the high priest. Joshua, the priest of the old covenant people, the Hebrew church, has come back to the land. They've sort of rebuilt uh, the temple. Sacrifices are sort of commencing. 
The Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan, or the accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, Therefore, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now, verse 3. Joshua, the priest, was standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. Now, what's going on there in Zechariah chapter 3? You have the high priest, the one who represents the people of God, standing, trying to minister at the altar. But his garments are clothed with human excrement. He's unfit. He's defiled. And there comes the accuser, Satan, to accuse him. To say, look, he can't be in the presence of God. He cannot give the people of God access to God. Because, look, he's clothed in filth. You see, these accusations of the devil were true, of the accuser. They weren't just allegations. Sometimes people will bring allegations against you and they're just crazy. Satan is coming with true accusations. He's covered in excrement. He can't be here. And what does Yahweh say? The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. Verse 4. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with pure vestments. And verse 5, Zechariah can't even control himself, can he? And I said, let a clean turban be put on his head. Those feces-covered garments taken from Joshua in Zechariah chapter 3 were put on another guy named Joshua. His Greek name being Jesus. Why could the angel rebuke? Why could the Lord rebuke Satan? Because The angel of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant, the messenger of Yahweh, Jesus, wore those garments as he was stripped down to his nakedness and hanged on a tree. Because the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And now he is going back to his father. God has accepted all he has done for us. And so his people are acquitted. The accuser is rebuked by Christ. Perhaps they do not understand how Christ's return to heaven is good news for them. Because because they don't yet understand their own defilement yet, do they? They don't yet understand their need of a savior yet, do they? They don't understand the benefits because they don't understand their need. 
But you know what? What does Jesus say? Look, verse 28 again. They will understand and believe after. Verse 29. The Lord tells them, you may not understand what I've, what I've said, but you, you will understand once it takes place and you will believe. Once he is raised on a tree, once he is crucified in their place, then it will make sense. We see again the patience and the compassion of our Savior, how much he puts up with these muddling disciples who have failed to grasp so much. He hasn't told them these things to shame them or to embarrass them, but to, again, give them strength to persevere so that when the trial comes, when he is arrested and interrogated and hanged on a tree and killed, so they will believe. The motive of Jesus here is for their joy later. Isn't the Savior kind? As the disciples are so focused on themselves. And who's going to be the great one? Who's going to be at the right hand and the left hand? His concern is for their joy later. The master's disciples should have been focused on bringing Joy to their Lord, but instead he says, you will understand this later. And their understanding will inevitably bring them great joy. They will believe after. Not in the sense of simply accept Jesus' words as credible. But they will trust the Savior entirely and rest on him alone. So believe in Christ. But verse 30, the blameless Christ. The accuser is coming. The devil, the ruler of this world is coming. The Lord Jesus shifts his attention slightly and brings part of his discussion to a close, reminding them time is short. Jesus is the king and he brings the kingdom of God, but he refers to Satan, the accuser. That's, of course, what his name means. He refers to him as the ruler of this world. By God's permission, Satan exercises his tyranny over this world. But Satan's tyranny was and always remains limited. When we rebelled against God, we chose Satan's tyranny and rule over God's gracious dominion. But God graciously has limited the tyranny of the devil, preventing the world from becoming as bad as it could be. Yet in the coming hours, some of God's restraint on Satan, was loosened. Jesus himself submits to Satan's designs to a certain extent, allowing himself to be arrested and tried, though even Satan could not maintain control over the events of that evening. Satan will be overthrown in his own schemes. Yet Jesus' time is now short because the prince of darkness comes. Satan has come, luring and enticing and manipulating the desires of Judas. Satan manipulates human agents to do his bidding. Yet remember, Jesus commanded Judas, what you are about to do, do quickly. You see, Jesus remains firmly in control. And the reason Jesus is firmly in control is that he is God, he is Lord, he is creator of all that exists. But also Jesus is the man, fully blameless. And the devil has no claim on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the end of verse 30. He has no claim on me. The devil's claims and the blameless Christ. Often in popular Christianity, this of course goes back to medieval Christianity, the idea that Jesus was paying a ransom to the devil is, is, is not true. That's not that's not what Jesus was doing. He was not paying a ransom to the devil. The devil has no claim on Christ. He was ransoming his people from the grave by paying a debt to justice. Jesus says, the devil has no claim on me. We might say it in more common terms, he's got nothing on me. Christ is perfectly holy. Completely devoted to his father, to to righteousness. There is no sin in him. It is one of the devil's works to accuse. That's what his name means. Satan, the accuser or the adversary. But Satan has nothing with which to accuse Jesus. Jesus was triumphant over temptation. As Satan enticed Jesus with empty promises and false promises. Just as he enticed Adam. With empty promises. But the Savior could not be enticed. Jesus was not caught up in the, in the accuser's lies. The Lord Jesus Christ overcame temptation with God's truth. So the Lord Jesus Christ has no flaw which Satan can exploit. Satan has found no weakness in tempting Jesus. And so Satan has no claim on Christ. Sin is what gives Satan The devil, tyranny, a hold over his people, dominion over his people. Because sin is how the devil charges and accuses people before God. That's what his name means, remember. The adversary, the accuser. And what Satan does is accuse. He reminds of guilt. He reminds us of our guilt. He accuses us even before God. That's what we saw in Zechariah 3. Of Satan, the accuser. Accusing the high priest. But in Christ there is no guilt to condemn. He is not of this world. He has never sinned. So Satan has no power over him. Christ has no fear of the devil's power because he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. There is nothing in him for the adversary to accuse Completely blameless. There is no claim. You see, here is the difference between the Lord Jesus Christ and all the other prophets. All the other teachers and rabbis and wise men of the Bible. All of them are marked by failures and sins. Abraham sinned, didn't he? Abraham, the father of the faithful, was a coward and a liar. Isaac, the father of Israel, conspired to deprive Israel of the blessings that were promised him and to give them to Esau instead, to give them to his favorite son instead of Israel. Moses, the mediator of the Sinai covenant who patiently persevered with Israel in the wilderness, was a murderer. And and not only that, do you remember the time he attempted to take credit for God's miraculous provision of water? We could go on. But all the great heroes of the faith 
are marked with glaring failures on their records. Whatever good they did was undermined by glaring, ugly sins, declaring them unfit to be in God's presence. And yet Christ, outstanding among 10,000, there is none like him, holy, blameless, undefiled among weak mankind. He kept himself pure so he could be the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He alone is able to stand in the gap between God and man. Well, let me ask you, does does Satan have a claim on you? Is there any sin in you that Satan can exploit, can accuse you of, use to manipulate you into evil or to proclaim your condemnation? 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make Christ a liar, and his word is not in us. All of us have sinned. We are all subject to the devil's accusations and power. How do you respond to the charges of the devil? How will you respond when the devil throws your sin in your face and your conscience and claims that you are condemned before God? You know, it's, it's no good to, to plead, well, I, I did my part. It's no good to claim, well, I'm, I'm not, I'm not as, as bad as, as those people. I was in church on Sunday. It does no, no good to say, well, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm becoming better. What, what did we read this morning before uh, our, our confession of sin? Though I say to the righteous, he shall surely live. Yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does what is not right. right? That's the meaning of injustice. What is not right. If you're trusting in your righteousness and you do what is not right. None of your righteous deeds will be remembered. All our righteousness is not enough. All our righteousness is tainted and spoiled by sin. Here we see our need of Christ's righteousness to cover us. If you are in Christ, if it is Christ who owns you, then the devil has no claim over you either because you are in union and communion with Christ. We sometimes think of this, don't we? Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds, in these arrayed with joy, shall I lift up my head. Bold shall I stand in thy great day. For who ought to my charge shall lay? Fully absolved through these I am. What these? Blood and righteousness. Fully absolved through these I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Christ's righteousness covers his people. Christ's infinite sacrifice for sin on the cross covers the sin of his people and satisfies the justice of God for our sins. Only in Christ can none of these charges stick. That's why Christ's ascent into heaven is good news for us. 
why Christ's ascent into heaven is good news for our case. Because when the devil lays these charges to our account, to our case, we cannot plead innocent, can we? We cannot plead not guilty. What we must plead is Christ. His righteousness covering us is our hope. And his death in our place is our justification. And his ascent into heaven is our vindication. That's why we sing. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Isn't that just glorious imagery there? You can't cling to the cross if your hands are full of your righteousness, can you? We must be hidden with Christ. We are entirely unworthy in ourselves to stand before God. But if we are in Christ, then in him, God is pleased with us. These benefits, this assurance, this acquittal are only available to those who come to Christ in faith and repentance. Christ's blood does not redeem anybody and everybody. Christ's blood, Christ's death, Christ's righteousness is only for those who come to him in faith and repentance who have turned from their sins and embraced him as he is offered in the gospel. Have you embraced him in faith and repentance? Is your life one of faith and repentance toward God in Christ? For all who have come to Christ in faith and repentance, there is firm assurance that Christ is your righteousness and that you are God's adopted child whom he loves in Christ. When the accuser comes to your conscience, to your heart and denounces you, reminding you of all your sin and guilt, of how unworthy you are to stand before God, then you have this sure reply, this firm Assurance. Christ is my righteousness. Satan has no claim on me because I am in Christ. And Satan has no claim on Christ. This is another way in which the Lord Jesus Christ leaves his people with peace. Peace of conscience. As we sung, when Satan tempts me to despair... I have a strong and perfect plea. Upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. An important truth for the comfort and peace of God's people. Satan knows he cannot snatch even one of Christ's sheep out of his hand. And so Satan endeavors to make Christ's sheep miserable. And so the Spirit, the Comforter, the Advocate supports us to keep us from despair and misery, to bring the joy of our salvation, to to continually remind us of all that Christ has accomplished for us. And that it has been accepted by his Father and ours 
in heaven. Let's look now at verse 41. Broadcast. The broadcast of, of Christ's love for his Father. Christ obeys the Father. His whole life is characterized, of course, by obedience. But Christ particularly has in view here the obedience he will render on the cross. His passion. His passive obedience. His arrest, betrayal, and death. And he does this because he loves the Father. Why did Christ do all he did? Take on the likeness of sinful flesh. Be born of a woman under the law. Suffer the miseries of this life. The wrath of God. The cursed death of the cross. To be buried and to continue under the power of death for a time. Why did he do that? The answer people usually give is because he loves us. And that's not untrue. But here the Lord Jesus Christ focuses that his endurance and obedience and his suffering was at the Father's command because he loves the Father and he wants the world to know his love for the Father. So that as he dies, as he is obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the world will know there is a man who loves the Father. God the Son, the divine Son, loves his Father. So that his Father's love may be displayed towards sinners. It is as though the Lord Jesus Christ said, My Father has willed the salvation of a multitude of people, a multitude that no man can number. But the only way for a multitude of sinners to be saved is for my infinitely valuable death in their place. And so the Lord Jesus Christ goes without hesitation to satisfy divine justice, to show his love for the Father, that the Father's love for his people may be displayed in the salvation of a numberless multitude. Jesus on the cross is broadcasting for the whole cosmos his love for the Father. Yes, his love for sinners too, but even more than Christ's love for sinners is his love for his Father. And so he sacrifices himself allows himself to be hanged so that all whom the Father has given the Son may be saved and redeemed by his sacrifice. Jesus has called on his own disciples to show their love for him by their obedience. And it is no, law, no different for Jesus. He shows his love for the Father in his obedience and self-sacrifice. What a marvel. What a marvel. Our rebellion, our hatred of God, our self-centeredness that damned the world is undone. And those self-centered, God-hating rebels find mercy and grace because Jesus is centered on the glory of the Father, on the love he has for the Father, and sacrifices himself. What is our response to this display, this broadcast of of the love of the Son on the cross? We must worship. We must adore and love and, and submit and serve this God who loves so much, who sacrifices himself to save those who were the least deserving. 
God shows on the cross his zeal for his own justice, doesn't he? He will not allow sin to go unpunished. And so to save sinners, he poured out his wrath on his own son. Have you come to the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you found rest in him? Many will take comfort in religion, especially this time of year, won't they? Many will take comfort in in religion, but will not take comfort in Christ. Religion alone will not save you. Religion alone is no wrath. There's no refuge for the wrath of God. Christ alone is the refuge for sin. Under his wings. Because he has absorbed every ounce of wrath. For every sin. Of every one of his people. That is why he was born. Let us pray. Oh God in heaven, we thank you for your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who was born so that he would have a body, a body you prepared for him. So that by his stripes, we may be healed. And so strengthen us in him, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen.